From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Spring football came to a close with the orange and blue game last Thursday. And while these exhibitions can sometimes provide clarity about what to expect going into the fall, most of what took place in the 10-7 affair led to more questions than answers. On today's show, we'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry for a roundtable covering what we saw and didn't see in the scrimmage, gymnastics falling just short of a national title, Trinity Thomas's place in history, another big addition for men's basketball through the portal, softball's Skylar Wallace on a tear, a questionable suspension for baseball, and the athletes who historically bent the rules in the PAT. Then, we'll get to know softball's super senior Charla Eccles as she winds down her tremendous career on the diamond. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet healthcare destination with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. Let us dive into this week's roundtable with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. We had so much last week to preview, and now we got to talk about everything that happened. So we'll start with the orange and blue game. Um, not not a high-scoring spring game like they often are, a 10-7 to uh, field goal walk-off final. Um, and obviously the focus was the quarterbacks. What did the offense look like? I'm not sure we can take a lot away from this spring game, but if you could, what would those takeaways be? I got a uh, a tweet at some point in the uh, first half of the orange and blue game, wondering if Florida's shutout streak was in jeopardy. If we still count for the for the orange and blue game. Um, you know, it, I, I I could sit here and and say a lot of things about uh, the progress of the quarterbacks and everything, but I, you know, I'll, I'll just take my cue from from Billy Napier. Um, who after the game, you know, was clearly, you know, concerned uh, that the, the the production of the offense, um, you know, wasn't what he anticipated and was and was disappointing. He said, talked about it being muddy. It was muddy in there. It was a mudslide at times. Um, uh, there were sacks. There were just horrific botched uh, snaps from center. Now uh, uh, Kingsley uh, Egwakan uh, was not did not play. So uh, he would normally be the guy in there making that um, uh, shotgun uh, center center quarterback exchange, but there 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 were plays like that that resulted in in huge losses, 12, 15 yard losses a couple times. That's I want to say there were at least four poor uh, snaps. Um, not a lot of room for the running backs to go. Although uh, uh, Montreal Johnson had a big run, Trevor Etienne I think had a run. Montreal Johnson's run helped set up the dramatic game winning field goal on the last play of the game. Uh, but I mean, a ten-seven shootout, orange and blue game. A baseline has been established in the sec in the second spring under Billy Napier. And I go back to what we talked about last week. This is a major roster turnover, and I believe the players are the overall strength of the roster is going to be stronger than it was last year, specifically on the defensive end with younger players that more talented uh, younger players that are going to be eased into the system. How that manifests itself uh, on game days on Saturday, of course, uh, we'll see down the line. But uh, we go into phase four, what Billy Napier calls phase four of the, of the journey that goes around. It's the discretionary period now by rules, NCAA rules. Florida has to take, I believe it's four weeks off before they get back into it. And so there, there's some reevaluating um, during that time by the coaches and, frankly, probably by some players because there's – there's a new transfer portal open, uh, uh, opportunity opening. And as Billy Napier said afterwards, uh, they're going to be looking for a quarterback in the transfer portal. He flat out said that after the game. So um, whether it's uh, whether it's Graham Mertz, <clears throat> excuse me, whether it's Jack Miller, 
um, or whether it's a, a an incoming person that we, we don't even know about yet, that, that, that has to play itself out. Now, Scott was in um, Fort Worth for gymnastics, so he got to see it on TV and got the full boat, the analysis from the people, uh, got to see the replays and stuff, whereas uh, I, I didn't get the full coverage like Scott did. I, I'm sure being away from his team, um, he has some opinions. Scott? I mean, a lot of it of these spring games, we're always going to talk about the quarterbacks when it's unknown. We talked about that on last week's show. That's what we were going to look at uh, specifically. You know, I'm like uh, your average fan out there watching that game from Fort Worth. I want to see what Graham Mertz can do because it's our first time seeing him in action in a game-like situation of Florida. Certainly started slow with a lot of the issues uh, that Chris mentioned specifically the offensive line and not having a lot of time. I thought Merch did find a little bit of a rhythm in the second half. And, uh, you know, afterward, you know, you could tell he he was certainly wasn't satisfied with some of the execution. Uh, but he also, I liked what he said. Somebody asked him about how much did the offense really show, and he says not much, you know. I mean, which is typical in spring games. So there, I, I think the big – the big question after the spring game is the same question entering the spring game. What what can Mertz do to elevate the offense? Uh, what is the offensive line going to be like kind of being rebuilt? Uh, we do know that they've got some running backs that, that are going to be able to play uh, with uh, Etienne and Johnson. I thought Cam Carroll had probably one of the better plays of the scrimmage with the leap, and I think it's a 12-yard run. So he looks like a guy that's going to contribute immediately. Um, and, you know, the, what Chris was talking about, I mean, Billy Napier said it before, but he certainly reiterated it after that game. I think they want to get another scholarship quarterback and just keep the pressure on. Uh, I think when you're in their situation, they are entering year two with a truly revamped roster. Every job's kind of still open going into the fall. And I, I think it's good to keep the guys on edge. like. How's this going to shake out? So I don't really put much stock in anything that we saw result-wise. I mean, you know, hey, good good for Trey Smack. I mean, because, you know, he was a guy that a lot of people thought was going to be the kicker uh, last year, and Adam Mahalik got the job. But, you know, Smack may uh, got a little headline play with his uh, winning field goal, so that's a boost for him. But mostly it's still a lot of questions that we're not going to find out for several months now, guys. And really, that's what these next four months are. Uh, uh, these guys got some work to do. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I think we saw that. There's going to be some new faces again. And, and we're going to say this every year from now. Spring ball ends. In the old days, you kind of had your roster, right? Maybe one or two guys. And maybe we won't see a, a lot of guys come and go. But there will definitely be some new faces that weren't that weren't here last week on the roster when they reconvened first fall camp, you know, in August. So, um, but I do think that there, there's some work to be done. That was kind of the tone. And I think and now it's time to get to work. We had talked last week about other players who are looking forward to seeing outside of the quarterbacks. Anybody else stand out to you in terms of someone you had your eye on? Maybe maybe some someone on defense that looked good. I mean, 10 to 7, it's a defensive game. Surely, surely there's something to be taken away from that without just talking about the quarterbacks, right? I mean, one thing, I, you know, the best, most upbeat thing I think I took away from it, I think, and this was interesting with the way Napier does a spring game, he kind of just observes. He doesn't get too deep in the weeds on the play calls offensively or defensively. So that was Austin Armstrong, the new defensive coordinator, his first time. You know, and I, I thought, you know, that unit obviously dominated the scrimmage. And Billy Napier even said afterward, hey, let's face it, guys. Uh, Got to give defensive credit. They made it hard on us tonight. So I think that's something that, you know, with the 29-year-old defensive coordinator, this guy's got this job for a reason at such a young age. So I think fans can take something out of that, that he knows what he's doing and Sure, you're, it's against it's a spring game against an offense that is still trying to find its legs. But I thought that was a positive with some of the young guys over there. Shamar James, I think, is a, is a guy that caught my attention some on the highlights. Uh, he's going to be a big, uh, important part of that defense in the middle this coming year. And um, 
you know, I, I just left it at that. I, I think the defense, I didn't leave thinking, oh, boy, there's a lot of holes there they're having to fill. I thought they, they held themselves pretty well. Yeah, I'll piggyback on the Shamar James. I'll second that, but also uh, Kamari Wilson, his classmate. Those are two true sophomores that were part of Billy Napier's first signing class, and they are going to be uh, two pillars back there. Um, I think they uh, – I think between the two of them, they had, I think, 15 tackles um, One uh, on one play. I think James, either it's either the other way around, James forced a fumble and, and Wilson recovered or Wilson forced it and James recovered it. But um, they got a little thing going back there. And, uh, you know, you don't want your safeties to be the leading tacklers on your team like they were last year, the last two seasons, I think, for the Gators. Uh, but those guys, I think, are, are – are going to be playmakers and they're going to be here the next two years, which is an, uh, an exciting kind of uh, baseline again um, for that defense. So we'll see what happens with the, uh, the transfer portal opening once again on the football side. Uh, but Scott, you mentioned you were in Fort Worth. That was for the NCAA gymnastics championships. And, you know, looking at it, Florida performed incredibly well in that final and Trinity Thomas added to the legend. And yet with, with that sport, there's the problem of no matter what you do, other than applying pressure, you can't really directly impact your opponent's score and performance. And Florida was as good maybe as they could have been and just was not quite enough to top Oklahoma, who has now become the what UConn was to women's basketball a few years ago is what Oklahoma seems to be in gymnastics now. Yeah, the Sooners win it again, and it was such a close one, just like in 2022. Uh, but as you let in, Adam, I thought Florida responded exactly the way they had to uh, with their performance in the Saturday's national championship. They set uh, program records in the NCAA finals on three of the four events. Team scores, their overall score was higher than any of their team scores when they won their three national titles. Hmm. And, you know, what can you say about Trinity Thomas? I mean, for her to go out there and hit that 10 in such a critical situation, I, you know, I've written this, I've said it. You know, if she played football and she was on the level she is in gymnastics and with her personality and demeanor, it'd be her and Tim Tebow right there, one, two, in terms of popularity in Gator Nation. That's how much she means to the Gators. I mean, she's a, a great representation of really – you know, it's a cliche and it's kind of we all roll our eyes sometimes at it. But she is an elite student athlete and a, a perfect uh, just a representation of Florida athletics. But as far as the competition, guys, I mean, gymnastics is kind of like baseball. You know, you're going to like some calls. You're going to not like some calls. Now, the thing about baseball is they've uh, improved the technology some. So you're getting some more replays. And there was a there was, I think, a reasonable sentiment after that finals that, you know, Oklahoma did have some favorable judging there. Gator fans are going to always feel that way when they, when they lose by a few points. But I think in this case, I thought he probably had some complaints, but I thought the biggest thing, you know, if you throw a Trinity Thomas, a healthy Trinity Thomas out there on all four events instead of just two, I think the Gators can lose one if she had uh, came through on the, uh, the beam and the floor the way she did on the vault. And she had a really good score on the uh, uneven bars. Unfortunately, leaned a little bit at the end. But I, I just go back. I mean, it's a, it was a good season, a fun season. And um, you, you like to see Florida finally win one for Jenny Rowland now because she's been, she's been here eight years, has a great program. They've been knocking on the door pretty much her whole time. And, you know, you go back to 2020 when I thought maybe they had their best team since those championship teams. It gets wiped out by COVID. And since then, Oklahoma's just kind of took control of the sport on the collegiate level. And uh, But that's an event, guys, that um, is continuing to grow. The sport's continuing to get better. And Florida is one of the elite programs in the country. I was talking to Bridget Sloan out there, who was part of those national championship teams in Florida. She was telling me that, man, even since she left in 2016, she can't believe how much better the sport overall has improved with the infusion of these Olympians through the NIL uh, process and just from it getting more exposure on TV and more 
top athletes getting into the sport. So uh, I think I think we're going to continue to see the Gators right there at the top. Just going to be a matter if they can get some favorable judging. Uh, well, or maybe get another Trinity Thomas. Maybe get a yeah. six-year Trinity Thomas would even help more. So the the end of a remarkable career for Trinity Thomas. But as you know, Scott, I mean, she's going to be remembered for a long time. Um, not just at Florida, but in, in the sport in general, just a phenom of college gymnastics who did things the right way. And unfortunately, the only thing she was not able to leave with was that national title that she she really came back to to try and get. I was I, I guess I should have felt I felt the mention at him. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing about her career. You look back, that's the only thing that she missed out on. And she was so close so often. But it was great to see her, you know, get that 28th perfect score a career score, which uh, tied the NCAA record. And uh, she will not be forgotten, not only at Florida, she won't be forgotten in NCAA gymnastics either because, I mean, she obviously resonates with the Gators fans, but Trinity Thomas is very, very popular nationally. And it was always interesting to me to go out there the last couple of years and just see how all these fans kind of, kind of, uh, she just attracted all these fans and, yeah, I don't think they were all Gator fans. They just wanted to get her autograph or try to take a picture. And, and she was always accommodating. So uh, one to remember. I want to shift our attention now to basketball. We talked last week, Chris, about a – I think we talked at the time there were four new names to discuss that were coming in. And you noted that Todd Golden was not done. And sure enough, uh, in the last week, he was not done. And more guys have come into the program as he really kind of remakes this entire roster from year one. Uh, what can you tell us about the latest additions to the men's basketball team? Well, there's one, and his name is uh, Tyree Samuel. He's a uh, he's kind of a well. I mean, it's 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 kind of a guy that the the Gators really needed to, to uh, one of these one of these players, a front a true front court forward that has proven in in power conference competition, having come from Seton Hall. He's 6'10", uh, 235 pounds, 11 and a half points, almost six rebounds a game in the Big East Conference um, along the way, you know, facing UConn, facing Xavier, facing Creighton, you know, some really, really elite uh, programs, elite competition along the way. So uh, he's a kid from Montreal. He's not a guy who's going to stand out. and He's not a stretch four. He's not shooting threes. He's a guy who's going to be in the post. He's going to be banging around, and he's not at all going to be phased by um, what the SEC has to has to offer in terms of size and physicality and athleticism. Um, maybe not an elite athlete, but uh, a guy who knows how to rebound. And Florida didn't have a, a lot of guys last year who knew how to rebound. After Colin Kasten got hurt, you can make the case they didn't have anybody who could rebound the basketball. Um so uh, going into the offseason, uh, Todd Golden said, we're not dealing with this again. We're going to be big. And they've now secured a 6'10", 235-pound guy from Seton Hall, a 7'1", 227-pound Sunbelt Conference freshman of the year, and Micah Handlock from, uh, from Marshall, and E.J. Jarvis, uh, a 6'8", 220-pound uh, Ivy Leaguer from uh, excuse me from Yale, who averaged all all uh, uh, Micah Hand, Handlock didn't average almost ten rebounds that game. Jarvis almost six rebounds a game. Uh, Samuel, like I said, almost six rebounds a game. Now it's going to be a, a a collective uh, measure of you know they're going to play mostly um, three guys on the perimeter and two bigs. Now they got a stable of bigs versus, you know, having to play Will Richard at the four and having to play a guy like Alex Fudge, who has since left the team to turn professional. He won't be around anymore. They're, gonna, they're not going to be overwhelmed in the post anymore. You know, I mentioned the, the newcomers coming in. Uh, you know, Alex Simchek will be back. He was in a developmental year last year and showed some encouraging signs on that front. Uh, Thomas Houck is a freshman who's coming in. Alex Condon is a 6'11 uh, freshman coming in. So they're going to have options uh, in the low post, and that's exactly uh, the goal of this coaching staff going into the offseason. I said last year they weren't done yet. They're still not done yet. I think only right now 10 of 13 scholarships have been filled. Uh, my guess is I think they're done in the front court. Uh, may get some news on a guard in the next couple of days 
and there's a plan for the other two that maybe we can talk about this time next week. As, yeah, as you said last week, the Gators aren't done yet, and it seems that uh, that that is that sentiment is again true this week as well. So uh, we'll see what other scholarships get taken up in the next six to seven days. Looking for scoring punch on the perimeter. We'll see if something happens, like I said, in the next couple of days. I want to talk about softball. We haven't had a chance to talk a lot of softball lately, but Chris, I know you just wrote a story all about Skyra Wallace for FloridaGators.com. Um, she has is, is become kind of a, a dominant player for that team, doing it in a lot of different ways as they continue to move through the SEC, just took two or three from Georgia. Uh, and again, some, some impressive stars on that roster led by Wallace. She's one of the best players in the country. Offensively, I mean, she's – She's in a different stratosphere right now. I mean, she leads the SEC in hitting at 465, leads the SEC in slugging, leads the SEC in on-base percentage. And last week against uh, Georgia, she got on-base 12 out of 13 uh, appearances at the plate, hit four home runs, including three in one game, Um, scored six runs. I think she had six walks, if not seven walks. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, in terms of nationally, she's 10th in hitting, 2nd in slugging, 3rd in on-base percentage, 3rd in run score per game, uh, 26th in RBI, 2nd in the country in triples, 13 in homers, 10th in total bases, 4th in walks, and I think she's 24 out of 25 in, in stolen bases. I mean, I, I had a conversation with Tim Walton in the game, after the game, the Sunday game, that they actually lost, and it's, it's a dilemma with her right now. She's really got to be disciplined now at the plate and patient at the plate because teams just don't want to pitch to her anymore. Uh, she walked three times in that in that Georgia game. The only time that she actually registered an at-bat, she did get a single in the game. The only time she got out, she reached for a outside pitch, and Tim was like, you know, you don't have to do that. Let's take the walk. Her situation is very similar to what Amanda Lorenz went through. Who, she may be the best hitter in Florida softball history, and they, they eventually – she wasn't getting pitched to a lot, but they eventually moved her up to the leadoff spot because they wanted to get her up as much as possible. And people don't want to put the leadoff uh, batter on all the time. Skylar Wallace is in that leadoff position. She's playing great uh, offensively. Um, Gators have won two of the last three series, uh, SEC series. They have a midweek series against USF, which includes a makeup game from a rainout earlier this year in Tampa. But a big series this weekend at number six, Tennessee. And that could uh, go a long way. So a couple of weeks ago, Florida had a sub-500 record in the league. They've worked themselves up to 8-7 and seven in league play. If they could go up and maybe um, have a nice showing at Tennessee, then obviously that's that's going to help them relative to down the line for the for, for the SEC tournament. But the, the team's trending in the right place right now. Uh, like we talked about in the past, it's a, it's a top-heavy offensive lineup again. The first uh, uh, four or five hitters are really carrying this team starting with the player in the number one hole, Skylar Wallace. Needs need some more production toward the bottom of the lineup, but um, Tim Walton's found a way to manage to get to the College World Series a few years, uh, the, the, certainly last year and uh, a couple years ago with the same kind of situation. So we'll see uh, We'll see how this uh, last, say, six weeks of this season uh, ends up before we head into the postseason. And had an incredible weekend in terms of, uh, of attendance, sold out the entire oh, series for the first time in program history. So that was also exciting to see for them. That's right. I mean, uh, the, the people that are really, really rabid about, about the sport. Um, I, I say all the time, I mean, I'll, I'll post a basketball story and uh, get whatever kind of uh, traffic on Twitter. Whenever I post a softball story, um, people look at it, people retweet it. People really care. They have a, they have a, uh, it's, it's, it's Scott knows this about gymnastics. Um, the fans that follow uh, these women's sports um, are really, really uh, passionate about about their Gators, and and they're passionate about Skylar Wallace. And she's a she's a really cool player to watch. Her competitive, she just exudes uh, that competitive element that you want to see. And Tim Walton had a good quote. He goes, "He wished he could put it in a bottle and pour it in cups and hand it out to to the rest of his players in his locker room." That's the kind of player she is. Across the street, also huge crowds watched Florida and Georgia on the baseball diamond. Uh, and, and I guess maybe the, the biggest headline from that series is uh, not just that Florida won the series, but that got to be careful the way that you celebrate these days with uh, with uh, some SEC umpires. Yeah, the Gators going to be without Brandon Neely, uh, you know, at South Carolina this weekend because uh, he got thrown out of that game for, I guess, excessive celebration. We never really got a 
a reason for it. I mean, you know, he struck out a Georgia batter to end the inning, to end the threat. And he was sure he was a little pumped and maybe a flex, but nothing we haven't seen a lot uh, in baseball in recent years as the game embraces more uh, emotion or showmanship. Well, uh, so he had, we heard uh, from Kevin O'Sullivan after uh, the win over Florida AM that they will be without him uh, per the SEC at South Carolina. But Jack Caglione, I thought, had the moment. You know, he responds the next inning with the grand slam. And if you haven't seen it on social media, I think most of our fans have. But if you haven't seen it, it was one of my favorite moments. Uh, you know, coming around and he just goes into a stoic mode as he gets to home plate and all of his teammates and walks through him like nothing happened. So uh, that kind of went viral on social. And Caglione is just, we all know, we've talked about him having an amazing season, but um, I think, you know, the thing you take away with the Florida baseball team right now, the 31-7 and after 38 games, that's the best stretch they've had since they started the 2018 season, 32-6. and And if you remember correctly, that was the last time the Gators went to Omaha. So uh, that is what they are trying to do. They're on pace right now. Uh, They're winning all these series in the SEC. And now they'll try to keep that streak alive uh, at South Carolina this coming weekend. Moving on to our PAT, it's inspired by, I think, probably the the dirtiest athlete of, of this current moment, or that I could think of, uh, in Draymond Green, if you haven't seen him. And the uh, the stomp he had on, uh, on Sabonis' chest the other day, it did get him suspended for a, a playoff game. Uh, in part because I think the NBA said that it was something lines of, quote, a repeated pattern of this type of behavior. So it, it got me thinking about you guys have covered a lot of athletes over the years, whether it's people that were on teams you had the beat for or just an athlete that you saw a team you were covering compete against. Who are the dirtiest athletes you've encountered in, in your long tenures as sports writers? I mean, dirtiest is one of those words that kind of, means a lot of different things to different people. I, you know, you could call it what some people call it dirty. Other people just call it ultra competitive, you know. Um, <laughs> is, I is, think, is stomping on someone's chest on the floor? Yeah, it's probably uh, dirty, but, you know, yeah. since I, you know, I covered a couple of sports, you know, before doing this job in baseball and hockey that, I mean, hockey, there's a lot of, a lot of what I think some fans would call dirty, but in hockey, it's just part of the game. Like, the Lightning used to have a guy, Andre Watt, big old guy. And, I mean, he was their enforcer. And, you know, he, he also had a good personality off the ice. He was funny to talk to. Uh, but he did some things that when the Lightning were struggling and they needed a little bit of an energy boost, uh, Andre might accidentally get his stick in the wrong place. Uh, or he might check somebody really hard in the back, but that's part of the game. But uh, he was an important part of their 2004 NHL championship. I mean, you have to have guys like that. Uh, And he did some of that work. And then I think of baseball, I can remember, you know, covering a lot of Rays and Red Sox series over the year. And a lot of people aren't going to think of him as being dirty. But Pedro Martinez had a little bit of a streak in him that uh, you didn't want to mess with Pedro too much. And there was a point there in about 2001, 2003, where the Rays and Red Sox, you got to remember the Red Sox were really good at that time. The Rays stunk. But they had a real competitive uh, rivalry. And Pedro would seemingly hit Rays batters, and the Rays would retaliate. You know, I remember a fight that he hit Gerald Williams uh, one time, and uh, they got in a real nasty fight at the trough. And that lingered for like two or three years. Every time they met, something would happen. And eventually, Lou Pinella got there, and, you know, Lou's a little feisty competitor. And uh, there was a series where the Rays retaliated, and the MLB kind of sided with the Red Sox, and Lou and Don Zimmer got suspended for a three-game series. And I may have mentioned this on here before, but it's one of my favorite sports riding memories, all because of Pedro and the Red Sox uh, in Baltimore uh, getting to sit beside a suspended Lou Pinella and Don Zimmer for three straight games in a series and just listening to them unfiltered talk about <laughs> their Rays team. It was just classic uh, 
if I ever get to use that, it'll have to be in a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, Pedro Martinez was one of those guys who, uh, he, he was that way. So I don't know if you characterize him as dirty, but he was certainly uh, ultra competitive. I don't remember how old I was in the 70s when Sports Illustrated did a cover story on Conrad Dobler, who was the... Uh, Just passed the, away, right? Yeah, I think he did die in the last few years. Um, it was the, the beginning and the end of conversations in terms of uh, <laughs> dirty play in the, in the NFL. I mean, he literally was quoted. He bit people. He gouged at their eyes. On, I mean, it was a different kind of... Uh, I mean, just to come out and say it, and and everyone knew, you know, if you you're playing the St. Louis Cardinals at the time, St. Louis Football Cardinals at the time, mm. you're going to have a, have to deal with Conrad Dobler. Um, you know, in the '80s, uh, I guess you weren't alive yet, Adam. But I mean, the the uh, uh, Bill Lambeer, Dennis Rodman, they were dirty players, man. And Rick Mahone, Rick Mahorn, I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't cover those teams. I didn't cover Grayson Allen, although I almost did because he he was he was coming to Florida. Um, until Duke offered him at the last second. He was from hmm. Providence Christian up in uh, Jacksonville. Did not know that. Yeah, yeah he was indeed. Uh, his dream school was Duke, and he wanted to come. So I, did, so I don't think I've ever covered a truly, truly been been around a really dirty player. I know, uh, I've t- I think I've told this story on this uh, podcast before, but Warren Sapp blindside blocked this, this player from Green Bay by the name of Chad Clifton, who went to Tennessee, and uh, – Really, really hurt him. I mean, there was some internal organ kind of stuff that happened in, in, in his vertebrae, and it's just this really, really and it 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 was a blindside block on an interception return of a Brett Favre pass. Uh, this was in 2002, and Warren Sapp and Mike Sherman ended up like almost getting into a fist fight after the game over this thing, mm-hmm. and it also caused the NFL to uh, to reevaluate what you were allowed to do how you were allowed to block somebody. Warren Sapp, like, left the ground to hit, to, to block this guy from the blind side. So they changed the, the – you can't launch to block a guy in an open field anymore. So, But in terms of a straight thug, a goon in hockey or something like that, I, I you know, I guess I've been pretty fortunate not to have to deal with that because you write a lot of suspension stories, I guess. I mean, I never had to deal with Ron Artest or Meta World Peace or whatever he calls yes. his name now. Guy, you know, got you know, guys like that. Uh, those old Knicks teams, some of those Heat teams that were really tough. Now I never, I never had to, you know. So, uh, Spurrier didn't let a lot of dirty players, but he certainly complained about it when there were dirty <laughs> players on the on the other side. I know the one of the impetus of him leaving was how was what happened that day when Scott may remember who was the FSU defensive lineman who shook uh, Ernest Graham's leg and hurt him. That was two thousand one. And Ernest Graham ended up couldn't play, I believe, the next week against Tennessee in a game that had a Rose Bowl and national championship ramifications. And uh, Spurrier bitched about it, um, got a little admonished about it. And that's when Dave uh, Dave Hart said someone needs to take him up and spank him. Got got a little <laughs> bit of momentum, and there was some back and forth in the administrative office here that you know they needed to cool that stuff. But you know you didn't tell that guy not to talk about. Florida State playing to the whistle, as it were. We successfully unearthed some uh, some dirty players from your past during this. This this was a good exercise. I'm glad that we did this. Um, but thank you guys for giving us that. Thank you for all the updates on the incredible volume of activity happening right now in Gator Nation. And of course, we'll be back next week to discuss it even further. Thank you guys. Thanks, Adam. See you, Adam. One of the lone benefits of COVID was the ability for all athletes to take an extra year of eligibility, essentially making the 2020-21 athletic year a freebie if you chose to compete. While that path wasn't for everyone, it was a no-brainer for Charlotte Eccles. A softball lifer who extracts joy from all aspects of the game, Eccles relished the chance to prolong her college career, and as we learned in our chat this week, she plans to keep playing long after she leaves Gainesville. Uh, so I'm from Noonan, Georgia. It's like 20 minutes south of Atlanta. Kind of small. Um, I have two older sisters. Both of them play college ball. I thought that's really where it all started for me. Um, started playing softball when I was four. And I really, really haven't stopped since. Uh, yeah. Both of my parents played sports growing up. So I've always been, I've always been around softball, always been around sports. So it's pretty much 
all that I know. Where did the softball bug start? Was it the was it the first sport that one of your sister, your oldest sister, was introduced to, and then everything kind of fell in line? What was the journey for the family to become a softball family? Yeah, softball was always always our first sport. Um, my sisters played basketball, ran track, but I only played softball and played basketball. But uh, softball is always in my first love. It's um, always been something that. I really enjoyed doing like not just at practice. Like I was always the kid that wanted to go outside and hit, having to drag my sisters out of the house. But um, <laughs> softball's always been something that like I can always go to, and something's always really fun for me. Hmm. So I think with, with with all kids, there's a point where it's just a fun thing that you do, but then maybe it turns into something more. So for you. When did you have the realization? Was there like a, a eureka moment where you're like, oh, wait, softball can get me to college. It can take me around the world. When did that next piece unlock for you? Probably my freshman year of high school. Uh, I feel like that's really when child ball starts to amp up. And it's like, like you know, like people start committing to schools and um, college coaches start coming to your games. And, and then stuff starts to get a little more serious and um, – a little more pressure comes with that also. So mm-hmm. softball starts to become, you know, more of like a business type of deal for me at that point, rather than just going out there and having fun, which softball is still fun at that time, but it is definitely taken a little more serious when you get, get to high school and um, coaches start reaching out, you start reaching out to coaches. So that's probably when things started to get serious for me. What do you remember about the recruiting process when that all got going, as you were just talking about and what made Michigan State the, the right choice for you at the time? Yeah, so, um, and I committed my freshman year. So oh, I, wow. Um, yeah, so, but at that time, like, I would kind of say, like, there are a lot of people committing um, in my class at that time. And I wasn't really getting that much attention, which, like I said, I committed my freshman year. So things could have easily changed um, after mm-hmm. that. But Michigan State at that time, my sister went there. So if I committed there, I knew she'd be a senior and I'd be a freshman by the time that came about. Um, I love the campus. Um, East Lansing is a beautiful place. It gets really cold. Nobody really told me about that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like your sister should have warned you, right? Yeah, she should have. She didn't. <laughs> like, um, I knew it was going to be cold. I didn't know it was going to be that cold. And um, uh, I feel like softball should be played in the heat rather yeah. than the cold. So yeah. Um, by the time Michigan State did seem like uh, a good fit for me and my time there, I did, I did enjoy getting to play with my sisters, um, and getting to meet like some girls that I still talk to today. So, um, I don't regret going there at all at that point in my life. That was the best decision for me. Hmm. Yeah. Similarly, I thought it'd be cool when I got to high school and I was a freshman and my sister was a senior, but she totally ignored me and pretended not to know me in the hallway. So (laughs) your experience sounds better than mine. And we didn't even get to play a sport together. So I think you definitely, you got the better end of that. Um, So Michigan State was the right choice at the time. What changed for you? What what led you to start thinking about going elsewhere? Um, Really? So my sister was leaving. Like I said, it was, it was her last year there. Um, she was really my like go to at Michigan State. Like she was really, really the person I could always go to. She took me everywhere, like kind of thing. And I was like starting to think about what would that be like without her being there, being at every game, like you know. And um, I wanted to get a little closer to home. Felt like I was missing a lot of stuff with my family. Like I was playing with the, I was gonna play with the USA team that summer. Mm-hmm. So um, it was just I wanted something more. I guess like I wanted. I wanted to see how good I was. Like I wanted to test the waters a little bit. Um, and I felt like somewhere else would be better fitted for me to be able to, to do that at that time. Um, and honestly, like the SEC is like a really big conference and always something that um, I always watch. Like even in college, like I was still watching SEC softball when I'm not playing. And it was just, um, it was something that like, you know, I just wanted to see if I could do it. And um, the opportunity came about and here I am. Yeah. So what, what made Florida the right choice? That's a, that's a pretty big jump to one of the top programs in the country. Had you previously had any relationship with, with Coach Walton or did this all start once you decided it was it was time to, to transfer? I wouldn't really say we had a relationship. Like I knew him from tryouts from the USA team. But mm-hmm. other than that, like we had no communication or anything like that. Um, but I think honestly, like it was my first visit. I had a few visits set up, but Florida was my very first one. 
and I felt like he made um like he made time for me like he he wanted me down here um as soon as possible other teams were kind of holding out like because they're it was postseason time which I totally get it like you know but um Coach Juan made me feel like he really wanted me down there to you know show me what Florida is about and honestly it was really easy for me to choose being here um playing for like one of the best coaches to ever do it and he's gonna be a legend when he gets done and um Coach Juan's always someone who I felt from the very beginning he was gonna give it to me how it is and he um and that's what I needed I needed someone to push me and I needed someone to you know not always be my friend and Mm -hmm. um and I haven't regretted that decision since Uh, it's been the best decision I've made what were some of the challenges that you had? I mean, other than uh, some, as you noted, some some tough love at times when it comes <laughs> to being coached, what else made transitioning to everything at Florida challenging? Whether it's, again, the team, changing school, living in a new place. It's a lot hotter. I don't know if you noticed that yeah. than it was at <laughs> Michigan State. But yeah, what, what were some of the things that were, were part of that transition for you? I think one of the hardest things for me was um, – starting to like really believe that I belong there like you said it's a big jump from Michigan State to Florida especially the caliber of softball in history um and I came into a situation where like these girls are really good he didn't lose a bunch of people um and it's like I knew I was gonna have to prove myself to be able to get a spot here and um at no point did I feel like I was in it alone um the girls were really welcoming it was really that part was really easy but for me it was just you know showing up every day and showing them what I can do and, um, you know, getting the chance to like actually perform and confidence was something that kept growing in me every day. And, um, so I feel like that was probably the biggest transition for me was, um, like finding myself and finding that, um, I belong here. Which teammates really took you under their wing? I know, I know there's probably a lot of support you got, but do you remember anyone in particular who really helped you and sort of showed you the ropes when you arrived? So Sophia Renoso was my accountability partner and, um, she was there like whenever I need anything, any questions, like she was always the one to call on. And, um, still to this day, like, Sophia is still like Sophia is the Gator standard and um she does a really good job of that um just even it wasn't just me that like all the freshmen that came in like she she was there like and um you can't ask for a better person to to look up to and I'm glad that she was my accountability partner as you've become an upperclassman now like you're you're, you're a super senior right uh which which younger players do you think you've had the greatest impact on and what way have you paid that forward so this year, like we only have two freshmen, so Olivia and Kayla, and uh, Kayla's my accountability partner this year. But her and Olivia are always together, and um, I I go out to dinner with them a lot. Uh, we have a lot of good times outside of the softball field, and um, especially with freshmen, like you just want to make them feel welcome, make them feel like you know they're wanted here. Mm-hmm. And they've done a really good job of like producing when they're called upon and um, being really good teammates. So um, I feel like I'm just trying to you know let them know that like it's going to end sooner than you think. So just take advantage of what you get and um, just enjoy being a Gator. Yeah. Well, and to that effect, you mentioned Sophia a moment ago, and I was going to ask you about the, the impact of COVID on your career. So obviously every college athlete had the option to take an extra year because of COVID. Sophia was one of the notable ones I could think of that, that chose not to. She was ready to move on with her life. Right. I'm curious for you, why was coming back that extra year important? Why was that the right decision for you? Like, I didn't think very long about it. Like, I knew I was coming <laughs> back. Uh, I still, I'm still in school, so it's like I still wanted to finish school. Um, and like you said, like, I transferred. So it's like I want all my years in Florida <laughs> that I can get. Um, I'm, get I'm getting my four years one way or another. Yeah. <laughs> and like like you said, Sophia, like, she already had her life plan. Like, she, she was, you know – had our life together and um I did not so I was like um coming back sounds pretty good to me so yeah. I'm glad I did so in terms of what does happen for the future actually as we're talking uh just yesterday you were actually drafted to play in the professional league so congratulations on that um Thank you. what what does softball mean to you beyond college how long do you can how long do you think it's going to stay a part of your life before you move on to that next phase yeah, um, I'm excited. I'm excited about it. Um, ever since I was a little girl, you know, like when they're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'm always like, I want to be a professional softball player. And um, 
now it's cool that like it's really happening and the sport has grown so much since I was four years old. Um, and I hope it continues to grow for uh, all the little girls that want to be professional softball players. But I want to play softball as long as I can. You know, um, mm-hmm. like I said, it's always been a part of my life and I can't imagine without it. So I'm prepared to play as long as as long as my body will allow me. But yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm definitely excited about this opportunity and and um, I'm looking forward to it. Well, I know you've also had some experience pretty recently playing with the the national team. Um, what what was that experience like for you? I mean, how is it different than what you come to expect from college? What did you take away from that experience? Just getting to play with um, older women who you know have been there, done that. Um, getting to experience that, it's like taking the field with Monica Abbott, who you know is one of the best players to ever play, if not the best. Um, and to like, just be her teammate, it's pretty cool. Like, you know, like, um, me still being in college, like there's still so much for me to learn and being able to be on teams with like Monica Abbott and Haley McClinney, like, it's just really cool to get to experience like how they carry themselves day in and day out and just being able to take from that and hopefully being able to share that with like the younger girls, like what it means to be a professional and what it means to like, you know, represent your country. You know, the age gap is crazy, dude. It's Monica Abbott, I, I want to say, is probably tw- maybe 13, 14 years older than you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she was doing it in college back in 06, 07. Um, have there been any moments, have you been starstruck at all with the players you're playing with? Because a lot of them, I'm sure you watched at the World Series on TV when you were younger. So did you have any any funny moments when you realized that you were suddenly teammates with them? Oh, um, I would definitely say at tryouts and then like when the team came out, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be teammates with these with these women. And um, it's like it's crazy. Like you said, I've watched them growing up and like finally being able to be on the field with them um, just made the experience so much better. Did you uh, did you have an autograph book you walked around with? Any- <laughs> like, w- <laughs> no, will you I, sign I, my I softball? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to look, you know, too no, like, yeah. like the new girl. But, <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, I'd be funny if someone actually. I'm sure someone at some point has done something like that. I'm curious yeah. how that I'm curious how that played out chemistry wise. Um, right. w- when you think about your your college career, and I, I know I know you want to go on as long as possible. I know it's not over yet, but it, you know, yeah. you're you're getting you're getting toward the end of it. So I'm I'm curious when you reflect back. I don't know if you have a lot of time to do that, but what stands out to you? What moments? What I don't know if it's games, events, et cetera. What stands out in your memories when you think about your your softball career? Probably the thing that stands out the most is like how far I've come in my softball career, you know, um, starting at Michigan State and then ending up at Florida, playing on the USA team, now like being drafted. Um, It's been a long time coming. It's been something that I've always wanted to do. And um, being at Florida has really changed my whole life, like, None of that USA stuff, maybe drafted, like none of that happens without me coming to this school, playing for Coach Wall and being pushed every day. Um, he's not only made me a better softball player, he's made me a better person. And I can't thank him enough for that. But oh my god, I feel like I'm about to cry. <laughs> but <laughs> but um but no, Florida has been the experience in my life. Um I'm definitely not ready for it to end, but you know, at least I have something to look forward to. But uh Florida has definitely changed my life for the better. So you, you talked about Sophia being someone, she had everything planned out, and you said that you weren't quite ready for that when you made your decision about <laughs> coming back. Um, but bigger picture, longer range, what do you see for yourself after softball? Or is it is it hopefully so far away that you still don't really have to worry about it? <laughs> um, right now, I'm hoping into getting into coaching, hmm. seeing how that goes. But like, if that's not the plan, then... Um, Something in sports, like I just want to be around it. I feel like, um, but like, so hopefully, I have <laughs> have some time to think about that. But, um, <laughs> but right now, like coaching, just being involved in sports, anything in that aspect. A um, couple final things for you: when you have a chance to get away from the field, when you step outside the game, what are some things that, that you enjoy doing? I would say probably spending time with my family, my friends. Um, like you said, like softball can be really consuming and I feel like it's really important to be able to, when you leave the field, to leave softball as a field. I feel like that's um, that's something I really learned here that you can't, you can't take softball everywhere you go, um, mm-hmm. especially with school and classes and stuff. But just being able to, um, like you said, like get away, like go bowling or like go out to eat or something like just with my friends or my family or getting to go home. Um, 
seeing my cousins and everything um that always makes makes my heart happy Hmm. Is this like competitive bowling or is it just let's throw a few balls down the lane? Maybe someone uses bumpers because I know that the football, <laughs> the football guys, when I talk to the football guys, they have like league stuff. I want to say, I think, I think Montreal Johnson has his own ball. I mean, they're very intense. So <laughs> I'm always trying to get a sense of, I think a lot of athletes bowl, but I, I never know how serious it is. Oh no, we're, we're not that serious. Okay. <laughs> we want to win, but we're not that serious. Also, good lesson that you hopefully learned from this. Do not challenge Montreal Johnson because he has yeah, his own ball. He has his own <laughs> ball. And apparently Anthony Richardson is great at that too because he seems to be good at everything he does. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so final thing for you, as we're talking now, the postseason comes up quickly, right? It, it seems like it's months away and then before you know it, it sort of it sort of lands on you. Um, what do you think the keys are for, for this team to make another run, to get you back to Oklahoma City? What do you see as, as the path for that? I feel like we're going to have to keep being productive offensively. Um, we're going to have to do a good job of scoring runs, scoring runs early. And um, our pitchers, like, just have to do a good job attacking people. Like, like we play defense is one of our things. So it's like, um, you know, just staying in the strike zone and um, just trusting us back there. But I think as a team collectively, we're going to have to do the little things and um, and just trust each other. We're going to have to all – it's going to take all of us to do it. I had one more question, so I lied to you, but I'm, I'm just curious. <laughs> to what degree do your friends and family, some of them back home, resent you for going to Florida and then having the nerve to beat Georgia when you play them head-to-head? Any <laughs> any any resentment from back home about that? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> um, growing up, I, um, I wasn't really – I wouldn't say I was really a Georgia fan. I mean, I used to root for Georgia because they were the home team, but like nothing like – Coming to Florida wasn't really that big of a deal for our family, but um, I know I know that's a lot different around here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Um, well, Charlotte, thank you so much for the time today. Congratulations on getting drafted on your incredible career, and we know it's not over yet. So, good luck to you the, the rest of the way. Thank you so much. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.